the idea that racial profiling is in it has any sort of significance in police work, I, I firmly disagree with. The roots of the system are racist. We both agree that systemic racism is a thing, right? You I disagree with that notion. This is Fireflies, the original kids' debate show. On this episode, we're discussing the hot topic of police reform in the United States. From racial profiling to a ban on chokeholds or no-knock warrants, our guest debaters Donovan and Alexis will cover it all. By now, I'm sure most of you have heard about the case of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old black woman fatally shot from a botched execution of a no-knock warrant. Or even more recently, the case of Jacob Blake, a black man shot in a botched execution of an arrest warrant. Now, these cases are becoming increasingly common, but there's still tons of controversy surrounding how we can finally put an end to the issue. Now, back to the case of Breonna Taylor. On September 12th, the city of Louisville lended a settlement with the Taylor family that pays $12 million and establishes citywide police reforms. But change really has to come at the federal level to make a big difference. The Democrats and Republicans, the two most prominent U.S. political parties, have both released information related to their policing acts. While both of them recognize and address issues such as chokeholds and greater punishments for police brutality, the Democratic bill in most cases goes a bit further than the GOP. For one instance, in addressing chokeholds, the GOP bill incentivized state and local police to ban these tactics, yet the democratic law will ban them from the federal level. Today, we will be addressing every individual major aspect of the two bills and get opposing perspectives from 15-year-olds Donovan Zagarin and Alexis Stalin. In certain scenarios, such as when they're quote-unquote aggressive or resisting arrest, officers may use a technique known as a chokehold, where they basically use an arm or leg to restrain an individual's neck, which often stipulates a risk of short-term memory loss, hemorrhage, and harm to the retina, to name only a few. And while many states, counties, even countries have banned them, they're still loosely regulated and regularly used in other places. Donovan, we'll start with you. Do you believe Congress should impose a federal ban on chokeholds as suggested in the Democratic bill, or should we take a less extensive approach and allow state and local police to make that decision? Um, yes, I believe that Congress should impose a federal ban on chokeholds, but I also think it's important to distinguish a chokehold from a restraint hold, as a chokehold is meant to... Uh, incapacitate the suspect and uh, is normally administered towards the neck and throat region, while a restraint hold is uh, normally to just keep their arms and legs and uh, body still and to keep them from uh, causing any damage or harm. Donovan, can you elaborate on one specific example of a restraint hold? So uh, something like a body lock where they restrain the arms and legs on the ground with their own arms and legs to keep them from uh, using them to hurt the officers. Alexis, do you agree with Donovan's response? Yeah, I completely agree. There's no point to have chokeholds when they kill people. And there's also different methods, such as just handcuffs or hobble restraints. Okay, that's kind of what I thought. I mean, chokeholds really have no real purpose, so it wouldn't make sense to keep them and risk another life. Now let's move on to no-knock warrants. 
These are essentially when a judge allows police officers to enter a premise without first knocking. And this tactic was actually first introduced in the Nixon administration as part of their tough on crime tactic. Now, we'll start with Alexis. Do you believe that these no-knock warrants are necessary? I think we should ban them altogether because too many people have already died. It's dangerous for both the people who are getting their house broken into and the police officers themselves. When you look at Brianna Taylor's case, first of all, they went to the wrong house. And second of all, her boyfriend was a lawful gun owner and he did what any gun owner would be expected to do. He fired a shot, which could have killed a police officer or somebody else in the house, which is dangerous because they didn't announce themselves and they didn't knock first to let them know they were there. So naturally, he would be worried about an intruder. Donovan, what is your stance on this? Okay, so um, I believe that they need to do a mix of both so that they need to uh, kind of collect more data on this, more uh, evidence to see if these uh, the warrants have any sort of significance, like benefits to the officers in any way. But in the meantime, before they uh, collect that evidence as well, they need to make it so the officers have to announce themselves and then enter rather than just enter without uh, any warning or anything. I, I believe that could prevent many things because, for example, that Breonna Taylor situation, if they announced themselves, even if they immediately kicked the door in, at least her boyfriend would have been aware that it was officers and he could have surrendered and no lives would have been lost. All right, Alexis, but what about in higher level scenarios, such as when it's possibly a terrorist or a categorically dangerous individual? Do you think it's still appropriate to be knocking on the door? Um, I think that's a little bit different of a situation because right now they are only banning them in the cases of drugs. A serial killer or a terrorist would be a completely different situation because they would be an immediate threat to everyone around them. Definitely understand what you're saying, Alexis. Um, And, you know, that is a very isolated scenario. So to get this clear, Alexis wants to ban these non-rock warrants at a federal level while Donovan wants to wait and use the data collecting system before taking concrete steps, correct? Yes. Yes, and I'd also like to add something on. I I don't want there to be an idea that these drug raids can't be violent in any way or these suspects can't serve as any immediate danger to these officers as they're likely uh, possibly gang members or something where they have weapons. So I do think that that is also something to take into consideration. Right, right. But even though they pose an immediate threat, most drug cases are not violent. All right, guys, I'm going to step in here uh, because I feel like it's time to move on to qualified immunity. So one of the biggest issues with seeking damages for police misconduct is this concept where a police officer is immune from violating certain constitutional rights because they are a government official. And for for example, if a officer shoots a 10-year-old while trying to shoot a family dog, they are not liable because As another part of it, there has to be a previous court case that said that the officer was liable for the victim to seek action. Now, Dominic, do you believe the officer should be prosecuted with this immunity or under the same conditions as regular citizens? I I don't believe that just because you have a specific background or you you have a certain job that you should should be treated any differently than uh, an ordinary citizen. My claim uh, is kind of backed up by this uh, Yale Law Journal. And I have a quote from their conclusion of this study that they made, uh, in which they conclude that, uh, 
Qualified immunity doctrine is unnecessary to shield law enforcement officers from financial liability, and the doctrine infrequently protects government officials from burdens associated with discovery and trial and field cases. As, as the claim you made, you, you were talking about a very specific situation in which an officer shot uh, like a 10-year-old, right? But I think it's important to note that these cases are very rare, and majority of the cases that they work uh, won't have to deal with sp- situations like that, and that they should be treated uh, fairly. Alexis, do you agree? Yes, um, I completely agree. So there's no point in them being treated from, differently from any other citizens when murder is still murder. All right, so while both of you agree about the need to eliminate qualified immunity, there is another argument that basically police can't do their job without qualified immunity because, for example, in a high-stakes shootout, they can't be worrying about accidentally hitting a bystander and the consequences behind that they have to be in the moment. Donovan, how would you respond? In, in this type of situation, right, I believe that that this qualified immunity could actually serve as like a fallback to these officers, right? They believe that they can make mistakes without actually being charged. And so I believe that the threat or the possible threat of them actually uh, going to jail for something like this, that they might make better decisions. But I also don't think that we're in any position to make any uh, kind of objective statement about whether they will act like better or worse under these scenarios if qualified immunity were uh, let go of. I don't really think you can make a distinction, and quite frankly, if they don't know how to fire a gun to do their job properly, they shouldn't have the job as a police officer, because that does put the public at risk either way, no matter if they get charged for it or not. At the end of the day, if they're going to be killing people on accident, they should not be police officers. Right, so to kind of give a sum up of this point, I think we can all agree that um, in this scenario, qualified immunity has kind of lost its purpose. Now let's move on to one of the most trendy topics of today, which is about defunding the police. For example, the NYPD, the New York Police Department, has a $10.2 billion budget, which is insane. It actually makes it one of the largest militaries in the world. Even former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg talked about having his own, essentially, own army in the police department. Now, many of the claims for defunding the police come out of the fact that many times police don't accurately deploy those assets. Alexis, will diverting portions of police assets to other departments such as youth services or housing have a more positive impact on communities? Absolutely. So police officers are there to solve crime, not prevent crime. But we can prevent crime by stopping it before it even enters the mind of people who are going to grow up and become criminals. So by giving money that the police would have used for who knows what and giving it to the education systems, we can teach kids no matter where they're from, no matter if they're in poverty or not, we can teach them about like economics so they can grow up and have a good job. We can teach them about sex education so that they can not have children that they cannot care for. And by providing free childcare or lowered cost of food or more affordable housing, it would decrease the need for crime. So with less people stealing, you would have less crime. And by adding more child centers, more youth groups to neighborhoods, you would give them activities other than joining gangs and keep them safe and also take away their need to commit crimes. Donovan, how do you respond to Alexis's plan? 
So the only, uh, there's, there's two things actually. So one, I believe that there should be a, an allocation or a better allocation of their money to towards training, towards some scenarios in which police officers don't know how to act. I believe that they need to be trained better for certain scenarios. And there's another thing in which I believe that they should divert resources to youth groups or youth services to help give people that probably have poor family lives and likely don't have a, a father as like impoverished neighborhoods are likely to be filled with uh, single mothers and uh, give them father figures in order to prevent them because uh, there, there's clear evidence that uh, a lack of father figures in the home can lead to a, th- that child committing crimes and ending back in poverty as they get older. All right, so in 2021, the NYPD will have a $10.2 billion budget. We'll start with Alexis. How much of that should be diverted to other services? Um, I think approximately $5 billion, but not all at once. So obviously, if we diverted it all now, it wouldn't make a difference. So maybe in a course of five years, start with $1 billion and donate that to education. And then the next year, take $2 billion and donate it to education and housing. And then the next year, take $3 billion and donate it to education, housing, and youth services, and so on, up until about $5 billion, I'd say. So altogether, um, where would all the allocation go in, for say, like a pie chart? Probably about... A billion to housing, a billion to healthcare, a billion to youth services, a billion to childcare, and a billion to education. Donovan, do you think this is an accurate allocation? Um, I disagree on a general level with the uh, concepts of affordable housing or uh, redistributing money for affordable housing or affordable healthcare and things like that. The education thing, uh, I'm not sure I have a, I have a different opinion on it that differs from this topic, so that's why. And same with healthcare, but I can kind of put my input on. So uh, for these two things, I believe that when we uh, redistribute these resources, it makes it so these people uh, don't have any incentives to actually uh, go to work and, and uh, earn these things themselves, as these people are. And already, you're referring to healthcare and and health and healthcare for the most part, uh, because uh, things that actually cost them money. Uh, well, and if they're uh, unemployed, they might ha- already be on uh, Medicaid, which is the services for uh, free, like some uh, free type of healthcare for people in uh, lower income uh, demographics. But if they don't have uh, healthcare already or so- things like that, I believe that the incentive for them to work for that uh, it, and actually go get a job rather than be handed these things can lead to uh, de-incentivization. So they don't get jobs and they remain unemployed. You know, like, Okay. Do you understand that affordable housing doesn't mean free housing? They still have to work for it. Oh, okay. It's just, yeah, yeah. They I don't misspoke. have. They I don't misspoke. have to yeah, live misspoke. in like ghettos. Well, so. I, you understand that as well. The uh, affordable housings are um, are also normally uh, poorer neighborhoods. Yes. Yeah, so. So there are there's still poorer neighborhoods. So uh, the thing is, when they're still poorer neighborhoods, they're still likely going to be uh, higher crime rates. So as I said. Or I haven't said this actually, but uh, there's high violent crime rates in low income neighborhoods that are more likely that are lower income, right? So uh, even with this affordable housing in these neighborhoods, they will still commit uh, high violent crime rates. But it has been proven though that hotspotting police and uh, higher police presence in these neighborhoods does limit the crime. Right, but at at the same time, like if we look at Norway, who's borderline socialist, they have free almost everything, and they have one of the highest happiness rates, and Okay, let's look at the incarceration rates. They have an incarceration rate of 75 people per 100,000 people, whereas the U.S. has 707 people per 100,000 people. 
Okay, so uh, I'd like to make a few few things here. So uh, I think it's kind of flawed to compare these types of things to other countries for a few reasons. First off, they have an entirely different culture than we have here in the United States. They don't have as high of a or near any gang presences. Uh, socialism also doesn't no, uh, necessarily mean uh, social services. That that isn't what uh, socialism entails necessarily. These social services that they get, those actual uh, countries over there like Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, they've actually been uh, getting rid of a lot of those social services that have been implemented by previous uh, groups, and they've been changing more toward geared towards uh, privatization. Okay, so I think the flaw in that argument is that they still have affordable housing, they still have affordable, they have universal health care on more than just affordable. They have low homelessness rates, everyone there has a pretty good standard of life. So it's made clear by using them as an example that a higher standard of life has much less crime. All right, guys, I think we are getting a little off topic here. Um, back to the original point of allocating police um, assets. Though we have the same generalization of giving services to youth, it's just a matter of the uh, more specific details. But I think it is the right time to move on. For our last topic, we are talking about racial profiling. So there have been numerous instances of black Americans being stopped for random questionings. Uh, for example, Vox reported that a young man was named, or is named, Devonte Shipman. He was given two tickets and hefty fines for simply jaywalking. Or another video from the same Vox report showed a police officer telling a black man not to wear a hoodie because it made him look suspicious. And all of this is part of racial profiling, where um, race, ethnicity, or national origin is one factor among others when police decide people are suspicious enough to stop. Dominic, do you believe racial profiling is a common issue in policing? Okay, so there are those uh, anecdotal experiences that you, you noted, and there are, are others, uh, right? But the idea that racial profiling is in a, has any sort of significance in police work, I, I firmly disagree with. And I think most of the ideas that it is comes from the notion that uh, just because there's a disproportionate outcome within uh, policing in which uh, African-Americans are more heavily affected than whites, just because that happens does not mean that uh, it is due to uh, discrimination. And I will get into that more so. All right, Alexis, would you like to respond? Yes, I would. I think absolutely racial profiling is an issue within the police force. It always has been. I mean, the police system was formed to keep runaway slaves from escaping. The roots of the system are racist, which makes the entire system racist. I, I disagree with the notion that just because it started off racist means that uh, it has continued to be racist. You have to provide any sort of evidence that it has. it is still uh, currently racist in any way that it was back then. Because obviously today there are no runaway slaves that the police are keeping in or, or anything like that, right? So I think it's kind of disingenuous to say, oh, well, it started off as racist, therefore it has to be racist today. Well, we both agree that systemic racism is a thing, right? You I disagree with that notion. So why do you think it's mostly black people who are in poverty right now? Why do I think that? Yes. There's many factors, mostly that uh, over 50% of uh, blacks grow up in single parent households, which feeds into the poverty cycle. Yes. And why do you think that is? Like, why why do you think it's more likely in black neighborhoods to have one parent in the household? 
mostly the uh, the welfare incentivization, as I like to say, where they uh, where they get more welfare for being on single parent households. And and so what you're saying is that um, black people tend to be poorer than white people, which goes back all the way to slavery, where when they came out of slavery, they couldn't do the same jobs as white people. They couldn't live in the same neighborhoods as white people, which is why there's a divide here. Let's look at Upland, for example. So it's pretty clear that like under 13th Street, let's say, has a higher minority population than above there. That is a direct result of systemic racism because all throughout history, racism still exists. But the the whole idea of it is a systemic issue. So those people had to like escape persecution. So they lived with each other. And those neighborhoods were underfunded by the government because they weren't even seen as actual people until way after the country was founded. You you understand, like, people didn't have equal rights as white people until very, very recently. So racism is a government issue. It's, it's, it's a systemic issue. It's rooted in our country. Okay, so... Um... Again, I go back to the point that uh, just because it started off as there was any uh, racist start to the country, that does that does not mean that there is currently any racist systemic racism. Obviously, there are there's individual racism between people that will never stop. I believe. Well, here's the thing. I, I well, I mean, the idea is racial profiling. So racial profiling feeds into uh, systemic racism within police. So I, I don't find this irrelevant. But, okay, at all. okay. Systemic racism is greater than just the individual. It's the I, I entire. Understand. I know what systemic racism is. I know, I know. But I'm saying within uh, there's there's systemic. The idea of systemic racism is that it exists within different systems and institutions of the government. So one of the most popularized ones is the police system, right? Which I was, which we were talking about today, right? And so Ben brought up the question: Is racial profiling significant in police? Which uh, I said I could address different uh, common things that people believe are uh, examples of racial profiling in police. So, okay. So going back to systemic racism in Upland. So you know how like the lower part of Upland is more heavily policed than the upper part. And that's because there is more crime down there. There is more crime over there. And that's partially because there are gangs. And if you look at it, Upland Junior High does not have as good as, as an education just for a little bit more context, they are referring to Pioneer Junior High and Upland Junior High, two schools in our hometown of Upland, California. Um, Pioneer Junior High was the school that I believe all three of us attended, and Upland Junior High was the second and the only other in the district. And Upland... Because it's fun enough, yeah. Yeah, and it has less funds. It has less parents who have money to pay for their kids to have instrumental lessons, to study, to have computers. They don't have as good as Wi-Fi. So they're not going to get as good as education as we did at Pioneer. And that is systemic. Uh, I don't say... I don't, I don't, that, that's not systemic racism. Yes, You'd it have is. To, okay, you have, you have to prove that racism is the direct causality of those uh, African-Americans to be in poorer neighborhoods. So I, as I, I don't even know how that's an argument. It's, it's factual that minorities and people of the same race tend to want to live near one another to escape the per- persecution of the other races. It's, it's been proven throughout history. Black people, went, once they escaped slavery, they were forced to live with each other because the white people would not accept them in their neighborhoods. We don't and, use... 
We typically don't use historical evidences of systemic racism to describe current evidences of uh, systemic racism. Because history defines who we are right now. History mm. is what happened to lead to this situation. Okay, so how oh, well, would... no. Okay, so yes. So history, yes, it does lead to... Of course, history has an effect on our present, but to say that uh, something happened in, the, in history, therefore it's happening in the present, without actually providing any evidence of it happening in the, happening in the present, and, and my argument is this, right? So as I outlined earlier, you, you can't provide a disparity or, or a disproportionate outcome of black people in poverty or uh, being arrested or being shot by police or anything like that. And in order for you to prove that is racially motivated, you have to account for all relevant confounding variables that can have any sort of effect on, on that uh, issue. Right. So here, let's just look at George Floyd's Floyd's case. So an SMU professor was arrested for the same exact crime that George Floyd committed. First of all, the George Floyd case was proven to be false. He had a real $20 bill, but he was killed, whereas this white professor was arrested, just handcuffs and released like the next day. So so that's anecdotal. That's that's not any sort of... uh... So in order to prove systemic, you have to prove it on a, on a large scale. And by the way, I'd argue that George Floyd's case, and many people see this, that it wasn't racially motivated. He had previous uh, contact with the, with, that, with the officer, Derek Chauvin, uh, when they worked together at a bar. And it, was, it has been told by people that worked there that they had many altercations with each other. All right, then, guys, I think I'm going to kind of step in here. Uh, I think we're getting a little sidetracked. But back to the point. I just want to kind of narrow out for the listeners, um, just to make it clear, Alexis, you believe that there is systemic racism inside the police system because of how it was created, while Donovan, you believe that there is no such thing as um, systemic racism or racial profiling. Uh, I don't believe there's any empirical evidence to prove that. All right. I think this is actually a good time to wrap up. Uh, while there are many disparities and differences in your arguments. Um, I think that truly at the core of all of them is that desire to build an equal, a fair police force. And I applaud you both for that nobility. Thank you both for coming on the show today. All right, so throughout this interview, we have seen many similar arguments, but in some scenarios, such as in the um, scenario of where we're going to reallocate police funding and racial profiling, systemic racism, there have been, you know, as you guys can hear, big differences. Um, For the most part, in terms of chokeholds and no-knock warrants, Alexis and Donovan both to a certain extent, agree. But in the case of defunding or, or reallocating the, the um, money from police, Alexis believes we should put it more into welfare systems, while Donovan believes that welfare systems de-incentivize people to work. In the case of racial profiling, they were essentially on both sides, the completely both sides of the spectrum. Alexis believes that because the root of police um, was from slavery, that the system is entirely flawed. While Donovan believes that just because there are certain anecdotal cases, we have to have larger statistics to prove it is systemic. You guys are all welcome to join the debate too. All you have to do is hop onto Instagram or any social media and use hashtag FireFliesDebate with a little snapshot of your opinion on police reform, and I'll make sure to always respond. Thanks for listening. I'm Benjamin Wong, and I'll see you all next week.
Special thanks to Molly McCusker, our audio engineer for the Fireflies podcast, Bella Yoon, our social media director, and Ada Kossi, our outreach director, and to Noah Golder, the co-creator of this podcast. And special thanks to you all for listening. If you like the Fireflies podcast, make sure to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and even consider subscribing. I am Benjamin Wong, and I'll see you all next week.